Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. What in the world is Paul going to talk about now that this crisis at Corinth has been averted? Going to talk about money. So stay tuned and have a glorious day. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. Um, I am. The birds are singing, the sky is blue, the sun is shining. It's a glorious spring day in Georgia. And I have my coffee, so, you know, what can go wrong with that? Well, today, I feel such a sigh of relief. What a difference a letter makes. The crisis has been decided at Corinth. And apparently, uh, the people or person that was causing Paul all this grief has been dealt with. Now, I don't know. I'm hoping that uh, they were reconciled. And that he is now part of Team Paul instead of Team Anti-Paul. Uh, or if he were, if they were dismissed and excommunicated from the church, I do not know. But I do know that, the, that Paul's attitude in chapter 8 is significantly different than the sorrow and anger that he had been expressing up until up through the first seven chapters. So today, Paul talks about an upcoming uh, mission trip, if you will. He has been collecting funds from the church churches in Macedonia, in Greece, and he wants Corinth to involve themselves with this. He's taking it back to help with the poor believers in Jerusalem. Now, uh, I'm going to read an article here pretty quick. Uh, really fascinating introduction to an article written by a rabbi concerning how Judaism dealt with the poor in the first century. Let's read that, and then we'll uh, we'll get back to this letter. It's uh, it was an article written for the Journal for the Study of Judaism, and is written by. Uh, Rosenfeld and Perlmutter. And here's what they had to say. The attitude to poverty and the poor in early rabbinic sources. AD 70, 250 CE. This is right around the destruction of the temple, but it contains some references prior to the destruction of the temple. In the Hebrew Bible, there are instructions to care for the poor and to be compassionate towards them. However, 
In wisdom literature, there's also criticizing criticism of the poor depicting them as lazy the Torah obligates the individual Jew to support the poor through tithes from the produce of the fields giving charity and free loans but does not advocate establishing public funds for the relief of the poor in other words taking out of the money given perhaps to the temple so no temple funds would be set aside apparently to deal with the poor dealing with the poor was an individual responsibility and the tithes they're talking about is set aside a tithe of if you're a farmer of your field that you would not harvest so the poor could come along and harvest and have food rabbinic literature for after the destruction of the temple shows that the rabbis advocated community responsibility for helping the poor so community responsibility for helping the poor didn't come by until after the temple was gone And the synagogue became the center of the Jewish community. It shows compassion toward the poor and encourages the Jews to support them through charity. They amended religious laws in order to enable the poor to have more to consume. It became a very practical thing. The temple was gone. And the Jews were, in almost every city, an isolated community unto themselves. Uh, Rome didn't look favorably upon Jews. So the Jews had to look out for themselves. And probably many Jews found themselves poor that didn't used to be poor. They probably had lands taken from them, property taken from them. And so it became a very practical matter for the synagogue to organize itself in such ways to take care of its people, poor included. This seems to be a change from the way the rabbis related to the poor prior to the destruction as is depicted by the New Testament. Examination of actions attributed to sages from before the temple's destruction shows that the rabbis related positively, primarily toward poor who were sons of good citizens. The other poor were merely considered others and were left to charity and ties. So rabbis and their followers would take care, um, I guess it's not what you know, it's who you know kind of deal and all anybody who wasn't within that circle that favorable circle uh, were left to the care of regular charity and tithes after the destruction though all of the poor in the Jewish community were considered ours sons of Isaac Abraham Isaac and Jacob so What Paul is getting ready to do in this talk about in this chapter is something that probably wasn't that was not that common in the Jewish culture. Paul was collecting money to take back to Jerusalem to distribute among the poor believers in Jerusalem. Now, why Jerusalem? Why is that a big deal? I'm so glad you asked. You ask all the right questions. Why would it be such a big deal? Well, think about it for a second. This is probably 20 years after the death of Christ. Uh, The church has moved out of Jerusalem and now it's up in Asia Minor. It's over in Macedonia. It's down in Greece, into Rome. The church has become, through Paul's efforts, 
largely Gentile. And that alone would be enough to put it in a state of disfavor among uh, among followers of Judaism. So if you were to become a follower of Jesus, you would no longer be welcome around the temple by this time, especially by this time, around the temple or the synagogues because you would be a traitor to Judaism. So if you were still in Judaism, you still had a shot at getting some help as a poor person. But once you become a believer, you're shut out from that. You're shut out from that support system. Think what a tremendous price a Jewish person would have to pay, especially in that first century, latter half of the first century, to become a believer in Jesus as Messiah. To be cut off from your religious family, to be cut off from your religious community, um, the amenities that that community would offer, the support that that community would offer, the fellowship and the camaraderie, all that is taken away from you. And so if you were a poor Jewish person who is converted to this new faith, where's your support? Who's going to help you? So I think Christian poor in Jerusalem, a Jewish Christian in Jerusalem would be in dire straits. So that's what Paul's talking about here. And he's doing something that's rather cool and unique and different. He's going to all of his Gentile churches, collecting a large sum of money to take back to Jerusalem to help out their Jewish brethren. This is this would be out of the ordinary, and this is a big deal. So, having said that, let's look at this letter. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And that I got a little map here; you can see it. Um, Macedonia, Macedonian churches. That would be Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. These are not wealthy churches. But they came together and raised up a large amount of money, apparently. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people in Jerusalem. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Apparently the church at Corinth had started to gather up funds to send. Hasn't been finished yet. Probably interrupted by this conflict that just got resolved. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the lo- and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You know, they exceeded in the grace gifts. That's the spiritual gifts talked about in 12, 13, and 14. Um, 
Paul adds this ability, this ability to give. He calls it a grace gift. You excel in everything. See that you excel in this grace gift of giving. Now, Corinth, as an area, as a city, and probably as a church, were comparatively wealthy compared to the smaller churches of Berea, Thessalonica, Philippi. So Paul is kind of pushing on them a little bit. I'm not commanding you, he says, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. What's he talking about here? Where did Jesus come from? From heaven. He's God in the flesh. God clothed himself in flesh. And in Jesus limited himself for a time to live our life. To live with us. Amongst us. Walk amongst us. He had the unlimited riches of heaven at his disposal. He could have called legions of angels to take him off the cross. He chose not to. He made himself poor for us. He's kind of telling the, uh, the Corinthian church, you know, dig deep. Make yourself poor so that the poor in Jerusalem can be taken care of. And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Good motives are not enough. Good motives must lead to good actions in accordance with our abilities. So they started. Paul says, okay, now let's finish. We've gotten through this trial that we've gone through. Now we're back on track. Let's finish what we started. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. You know, it's it's funny. For years, I w- I've kind of been of the attitude, if I, if I could not be foremost in whatever it was I was trying to do, if I couldn't be toward the front of the pack, I didn't throw myself at it. I'm 66 years old now and my attitude has shifted considerably since then. As a pretty much retired professional musician, I own up to the fact that many times I didn't do things musically because I couldn't be the best or I couldn't be foremost or I couldn't be um, a a big player in whatever group I was in. I've learned since then that God has given me a gift. It's called music. And when I play music in any context, that's me thanking him for that gift. There's a story told about a missionary. This is back, I think, World War I-ish. 
or two, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, he was a Scottish missionary. And he and his sister were getting ready to go on a mission trip to India. And they were gathering funds. But he was also selected to be part of the British Isles uh, running team, running mid-level, uh, mid-middle distance races. And uh, he was very good. And his sister was so frustrated with him because he was training and running, uh, preparing for the Olympics. And she asked him one time, why are you so enamored with this foolishness with running? Don't you know, we have, you know, we have to raise money for our missions trip. And he looked at her and says, God made me to be fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God's gift to him was running. His gift back to God was running. God's gift to me is music. My gift back to God is playing that music. And there's no mention of that, of me having to be a star player, a, a big dog on the porch, however you want to look at it. God is just pleased with me when I play because I'm using the gift he put inside me. And so now... I'm not so concerned about the amount of what I give back to God in the area of music. Playing music is enough. Now, how does that apply to this? Well, the Corinthians could give a lot. The Macedonian churches, respectively, and in comparison, probably gave less because they were poor. But that doesn't, that doesn't take away from the honor or the glory of their gift. There's a story in Mark 12, the widow's offering. I'm going to read it. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came in and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The amount of the gift is not as important as the giving of the gift. You give according to your ability. This old woman had two copper coins in respect and in comparison to, to what she owned, that was a huge, huge thing. It would be perhaps equivalent of me driving my car down to the church and handing the keys uh, to the church to give to sell a giveaway. It would be uh, an amazing thing, wouldn't it? what this woman, old woman did. And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, look, the Macedonian churches have given. I want you to give. Give according to your ability. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. All right, I'm going to apply that again to me as a musician. Um, I love to compose music. I love to play uh, I'm pretty much focusing on bluegrass now uh, with my guitar playing and I play bass and guitar at church and uh, I'm not 
I'm not gigging a lot. I'm not going out professionally. But I am playing. And I am willing to play for absolutely no recognition. I'm just a player on stage at church. Uh, nobody knows who I am. Or the, my friends do. I'm not playing in any high uh, profile venues. I'm composing music that people probably will never hear because I don't have access to a choir. I don't have access to a group of people who want me to compose music for them. But why do I compose music? Uh, because I'm a composer. You know, it's, um, I think it was Jeremiah. He got tired of bringing, he got tired of bringing warnings to Israel about the judgment of God. And he says, I tried to shut up and I couldn't. My bones were on fire. I had to preach. I'm like that with music. I can't imagine a day going by without doing something in music, teaching a student, um, maybe writing, doing some composition, maybe uh, practicing my own guitar or bass. I can't imagine life without music. And right now for me, life with music is music with no audience except God. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay giving what I have to give. This woman gave two copper coins. It was enough. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. According to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I have a friend of mine, John Joseph. I don't know if you're on this, if you're listening today, John, but God love you, brother. I think about you often. He has some health struggles. Now, he is a fine bass player. He's a very, very, very good bass player. We've been bass playing buddies for decades. And his health has taken him out of a lot of that. And he continues to push forward. He plays when he can. He plays what he can. And he is no longer at the place where he can probably do lots of outdoor gigs, lots of uh, any touring, I, I imagine, would be out of the question. But he still plays. Why? Because he's a bass player. Why did that Scottish missionary run? Because God made him to run. Why do I play music? Because God made me to play music. And however I use that gift, God will honor it. I do what I can when I can. John does what he can when he can. The willingness, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you're hard pressed. In other words, I'm not, I'm not thinking about making you poor, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that at some time in the future, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. A better word here might be equity. He does, he's not promoting socialism. He's just saying when someone has need, Someone steps up and provides that need. And when you have need someday, someone will step up and provide that need. As it's written, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. 
Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Titus did not Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we're sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel, maybe Luke. Luke was a big companion of Paul. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. You got to realize Paul threw himself into ministry to the Gentiles without instruction or the blessing, initial blessing of the apostles in Jerusalem. Jesus called him to preach to the Gentiles and he launched himself into it. His ministry of preaching justified through faith was radical and caused an uproar within the existing church. So much so that on at least two occasions, he had to go to Jerusalem to give answer for what he was doing. And he got the seal of approval from the apostles. They agreed that what he was doing was right and correct. Through Paul's efforts, the church became primarily Gentile in its makeup. By the end of the first century, it's primarily Gentile. At least majority Gentile, I should say. And it was this opportunity to show the Jewish church portion of the church that the Gentiles still considered them as brothers and sisters. And the Gentile churches coming together to help their Jewish brethren out who were being displaced in Jerusalem because they were no longer part of the synagogue or the temple system. It's a very big deal. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. Apparently it was a big one, big gift. For we are taking pains to do what's right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he's zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. Don't know who that might be. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the representatives of the church and an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Paul is asking that the churches he has founded take leadership and provide support for their Jewish brethren back in Jerusalem. This is a big deal because even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and this is his primary mission, he still had a heart for his Jewish brethren. He would always go to a synagogue first and then move out into the Gentile community. He had a heart for his people. And for those of his people who became followers of the way of the church, uh, he had a special place for them. And he wants the Gentile church to be part of the ministry to the people who gave birth to Messiah. Judaism, in many ways, had become the enemy of the church. We get that. Paul got that. He understood that. But that did not take away from the fact that the Jewish nation still deserved the honor of being the birthplace of Messiah. 
the birthplace of Torah, the birthplace of the law and the prophets, through which the church came. <sighs> you can just tell that Paul is so glad to be talking about stuff like this and not dealing with the rebellion issues that was taking place in the first seven chapters. Mm. In closing, this passage here has given me pause to think, and I don't know, I don't have any conclusions, but now it's making me think about offerings and how we support each other financially, um, how we take care of the poor among ourselves. Does the church deal with its poor? I'm not, this is not an accusation. This is a question. Do our churches have within their uh, handling of finances, do they have something that deals, that helps with the poor in our community? Does our church participate in supporting the poor of other church communities, not just our own. Our church, for instance, uh, we are very much tied with several communities in Africa, Christian communities in Africa, which are poor, and we are pouring money into those communities, supporting those people, helping those people develop businesses, helping those people develop their church. So, I mean, we're there, I see. I see areas in which our church is doing what Paul is talking about here. Well, lots of questions. That seems to be the way it is with me with the Bible. Uh, God answers a few questions, and a couple others seem to pop up. But that's enough for today. This is Mr. G. This is Paige. Here's my coffee, and I am out of here. Have a great day. Bye bye. I hope you have been enjoying these daily devotionals. I will say that doing these devotionals has changed my life this last year. I hope you have a fabulous day. God bless you.